All right, well, we're there in Isaiah uh, chapter number 40, and if you remember, as we've been traveling through the book of Isaiah, I've uh, been explaining and teaching how the book of Isaiah is divided into three uh, different parts. You've got the the first part there, which is focused on the Assyrian uh, Empire coming into Jerusalem to destroy uh, Judah and the southern kingdom there. Then we had those uh, four chapters just right in the middle that were more of a narrative. It was a story of Hezekiah, and we kind of learned about Hezekiah dealing with the Assyrians, and then we saw Hezekiah dealing with the Babylonians. From chapter 40 on to the end of the book, um, the focus is more on the coming judgment of Babylon, but the book of Isaiah changes drastically, and I don't know if you already noticed from chapter 40, and you know, I haven't mentioned this before, but I want to go ahead and, and kind of mention it, and it's not something that I've been focusing on as we've been going through the book of Isaiah, but some of you may want to study this out on your own. The book of Isaiah is referred to by some as the little Bible. The book of Isaiah has 66 chapters. The Bible has 66 books, if you count the books in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And, you know, if you look at it hard enough and you study it out enough, and like I said, it's not something that I've been focusing on as we've been going, but you can find a lot of correlations between different chapters and the corresponding book that that it would uh, have to go with. Well, here, chapter 40 would be the 40th book of the Bible, which would be basically the beginning of the New Testament. So it's interesting as you get into like the New Testament section of the book of Isaiah, the the book of Isaiah, the way that it's written and the way that it kind of feels is very different. Uh, A lot more positive type preachings, not so negative, not all these judgments. It is written still by Isaiah, both, you know, there are verses that come from the first part of Isaiah and the second part of Isaiah that Jesus quotes back to and attributes those quotes to Isaiah. So some people like to say that the second part of Isaiah was written by another Isaiah, not Isaiah the prophet, but someone else. But that's not true because uh, Jesus, of course, quoted from the entire book of Isaiah, and he said that it was Isaiah the prophet who wrote it. But I just want you to understand that the the, the chapters are going to change from here on. And even this chapter has 31 verses, and there's just so many great verses in this chapter. To be honest with you, I could not figure out a way to preach this. I mean, it was just so much information to kind of go with. Sometimes, you know, you cut things out and you focus on certain things and you try to apply it. I try to do my best to make real, you know, a lot of application and things that you can go home and do with these sermons. But there's just so much info here that I tonight what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to outline the chapter. I'm going to give you some uh, sections and headings and kind of give you some information. So it might feel more like a Bible class, I guess. And that's good. I mean, every time we preach, we should be teaching the Bible, but maybe a little less preaching. I'm just going to give you kind of an outline from this chapter, and if there's something that interests you, then you can uh, do some extra studying there on your own. But if if you look at verse 1, and we'll see how far we can get into this chapter. I'm sure we can cover the whole thing, but there's just so much information here. In verse 1, the Bible says this, comfort ye. Now again, you already just, from the first word in the chapter, you see the difference. Before Isaiah was, you know, mad and angry and judgment and all these things are coming down. And here we begin with this idea of comfort. He says, comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Verse 2, speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her. Now, 
We know that Isaiah is speaking uh, about, you know, prophetically here about the future of God's people because he says, here's why you should be comforted. He says that her warfare is accomplished, meaning there's going to come a time with God's people when there's no more war, there's no more trouble, there's no more trials, and there's no more fighting. And then he says this, that her iniquity is pardoned. And that's obviously something that brings us much comfort, the fact that our sins have been forgiven. If you're in Christ, your iniquity has been pardoned. For she uh, hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Verse 3, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness. That ought to remind you of the New Testament. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight. And the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Keep your finger there in Isaiah 40. Go with me to Luke chapter number 3 in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 3. We could have gone to any of the Gospels really. But Luke chapter 3 is a good one to go to. And here you have a prophecy that Isaiah is giving, and he talks about this man who was a voice of him that cries in the wilderness, who was to prepare the way of the Lord. Now, if you've got your finger in Isaiah chapter 40, find Luke chapter 3. But if you've got your finger in Isaiah chapter 40, I want you to notice verse 3 says this, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the... And I want you to notice the word Lord there. It's all capital letters, all right? It's not capital L, lowercase o-r-d. In the Bible, that... Capital L, lowercase O-R-D, is a title. It's like you're the boss or you're the one in charge. But in your King James Bible, when you see this capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is Jehovah God. That is the I am that I am. According to Isaiah, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness was to prepare the way for Jehovah, for the Lord, for God. For the I am, not just a prophet, not just a teacher, not just a, it was God is coming and we are to prepare the way for this God. Look at verse 3 of Luke chapter number 3. The Bible says this, For he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now you say, well, who is this man that is to prepare the way for the Lord? And we know that that's John the Baptist. It's fulfilled in the New Testament. Luke chapter 3 and verse 4 says says this, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, we just read it in chapter 40, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Notice, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And we know that later on in the book of, uh, or, or before this, in the book of Luke, when Jesus was born, remember, he was, he was uh, risen up. We're having trouble with these lines. I don't know. They keep coming on and off. We know that we've been having trouble with lights, but this one, I think the power of God is coming down. It's messing with that light. I don't know. Uh, so don't, just don't let that distract you, I guess. It's distracting me. But we know that Jesus was referred to as that salvation. And I want you to notice that Isaiah said that there was one who was coming to prepare the way of the Lord. And then that's fulfilled in the New Testament. John prepared the way of the Lord. And when the Lord showed up, it was a baby. When the Lord showed up, it was Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here you've got a great proof that Jesus is the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord. He is God in the flesh. We, John prepared the way for Jehovah to come, and Jehovah came in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Go, go back to Isaiah chapter 40. 
Look at verse 6. You get the instructions for John the Baptist here in the prophecy of John the Baptist. In Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 6, the Bible says this, The voice said, Cry. And he said, this would be John, What shall I cry? He said, the, God told him, I want you to cry. And in the Bible, the word cry doesn't mean like, cry like I'm crying like a baby. The, the word cry that we would use, like a baby cries, in the Bible is... The, the word that's used is weep, which is a word that we use as well. In the King James Bible, the word cry means to like yell. So he's telling them, I want you to preach. I want you to be loud. The voice said cry. The voice said yell. And he said, what shall I cry? He said, what shall I yell? He said, what is the message? What do you want me to preach? Now here's uh, the second section. Uh, I meant to give you uh, the, the sections if, if you're taking notes. The first section is verses 1 and 2 is the message of comfort. The second section, section verses 3 and 5, is preparing for the first coming of Christ. The Lord, prepare you the way of the Lord. And it's that first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that he obviously, he's came. The third section is verses 6 and 7, and it's about the frailty of man. Notice what he said. He says, what shall I cry? And he says, here's the message. He says, here's what I want you to preach. And he says, and by the way, here's what I want you to preach in order to get people to prepare for the Lord. The message that we all need to hear in order to prepare for the coming of Jesus. Now, this was the first coming, but we'll see later in the chapter that there's a second coming. And the message that we all have to get in our heads in order to be ready, in order to prepare for the coming of the Lord, for to be able to meet our God is this. Notice what he says. All flesh is grass, and all goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. So he says, he says, what do I preach? What do I teach? What do I tell people in order to prepare them and that they might be ready to meet the Lord when he comes? And he says, here's what you need to explain to them. All flesh is grass. And he says, goodliness, he says, the goodliness, that word goodliness is translated elsewhere in our King James Bible as, as mercy or kindness or love or loving kindness. Here's what he's saying. Everything that's good about you All the kindness that you've showed people, all the mercy that you've showed people, all the loving kindness that you've showed people. He said, everything that's good about your flesh thereof is as the flower of the field. Say, well, what do you mean by that? That all flesh is grass and that everything good that we've ever done is as the flower of the field. Look at verse 7. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. He said, the grass withereth, and then he says, the people, they are grass. They is grass, is what he said. He says, he says all flesh is grass. And, and look, there is nothing that will help us prepare for the coming of the Lord and the fact that one day we will meet God than to realize that our lives are frail. Our existence here is short. Our lives are like grass. They wither. They fade, the flower faded, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. Now, he contrasts that in verse 8. Notice verse 8, what he says. He says, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth. And he said, all flesh is grass. He says, the people is grass. He said, your life is like grass. He said, everything, everything good you've ever done, it's like a flower. The sun's going to come up, and it's going to wither away. It's going to dry up. It's going to go away. And then he says this in verse 8. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. 
And he, and he contrasts. He, said, he says, your grass. He says, your nothing. He says, your life is but a vapor. It appeareth for a little time and vanisheth away. But then he says, you know, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. And this is one of the great verses that, ha- that teaches us about the preservation of the Bible. He says, the word of God shall stand forever. And you've got to understand this. And you've got to come to your, a place in Christianity where you either believe the Bible or you don't. Because today we are taught by Christians that the Word of God is not around, that the Word of God ha- has, has failed. It's, been, it, it's gone away. The originals, you know, they crumbled away. But here's the thing. God said, you will crumble. You will fade away. You will wither away. But my Word won't wither away. And today we're told the originals have withered away. And the Word of God is withered away. And all we have today is a copy of a copy, and men make mistakes with the Word of God, and it's translated by, by men, and blah, blah, blah. But listen, either you believe the Word of God when it says the Word of our God shall stand forever, either that's true, and today we have the Word of God because God said it will stand forever, or it's all a lie, it's all fate, it's a fairy tale. Go to Psalm chapter 12. Keep your finger there in Isaiah 40, Psalm chapter 12. Let me show you a few verses about the endurance of the Word of God. Psalm chapter 12 and verse 6, the Bible says this. Psalm chapter 12 and verse 6, the Bible says, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in the furnace of earth purified seven times. Verse 7, Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. According to the Word of God, whose job is it to preserve the Word of God? See, people say, well, no, the, 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 the Word of God was lost in the translations. The Word of God was translated by men, and they corrupted it, and they messed it up, and we no longer have the Word of God today. But according to the Bible, whose job is it to preserve the Word of God? Look at verse 7. Thou, talking to the Lord, thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Go to Matthew chapter number 4. Matthew, we were there uh, today or earlier this morning, but uh, let's look at a different verse that we didn't look at this morning. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. See, you need to understand this. And, and what I don't understand about the liberals today who say, oh, you know, the, we don't have the Word of God. It's not perfect, you know. It's the, you know, the Bible of the Month Club, and you just kind of use the NIV when it fits your agenda, and then you go to the New King James. If I've got a verse that, you know, fits my sermon better there, and I go to the, you know, American Standard, and I just go to all these different Bible versions because, you know, we don't really have the Word of God today. There's not one that is really the, the Word of God. But here's the thing. Here's what you got to understand. God said that it was his job to preserve his word. Jesus said, Matthew chapter 4, look at verse 4. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by, notice what Jesus said, every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. According to Jesus, we need, see, he didn't say dynamic equivalence. He didn't say you need every thought, you need every concept, as long as you get the gist. See, these new modern Bible versions, they say, well, they're not, a, they're not a literal translation, but they're kind of giving you the thought. They're giving you the idea. They're giving you the concept. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone. He didn't say by every thought, by every concept. He said by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. See, we need an every word Bible. See, we've got to believe that we've got the word of God today and that we have every word of God today. Or we might as well just believe that God doesn't even exist and there is no God. 
Go to Matthew 24, look at verse 35. Matthew 24, verse 35. You say, well, pastor, that's kind of, a, that's kind of an extreme. You, we either have the word of God today or, or God doesn't exist. I mean, why couldn't we have a God and just not have his word? But you got to understand this. Go, go to Matthew 24, look at verse 35, then I'll explain my statement. Matthew 24, verse 35. Jesus said this, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Now, here's what you got to understand. If his words passed away, then Jesus is a liar. If his words passed away, then Jesus was not God because he made a, a false statement. Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And here's what I don't understand about those who do not believe that we have the word of God today. They believe that God has the power to inspire, to use men, fallible men, sinful men, and that the Holy Ghost was able to come upon them, and they were able to write in the original manuscripts, in the original languages, they were able to write down the inspired Word of God. You, you don't, you're not going to find too many Christians out there who will disagree with the originals were inspired. The originals were the Word of God. The originals, God gave us His Word perfectly. But those same people will say, but then man began to translate those originals, and man corrupted them. But here's the, here's the silly thing with that argument, is God used men to write the original. If God was able to make use a sinful man to write it, inspire it, and make sure that they wrote it right, don't you think that same God is powerful enough to make sure it's preserved throughout the generations? I mean, if God can use it, you say, well, you understand, it was translated by sinful men. Moses wasn't sinful. It was translated by men who made mistakes. Yeah, like David. I mean, Paul was not sinless. So if God has the power to write his word perfectly, inspired in the originals, then that same God has the power to preserve his word. And by the way, he's the one that said it's his job to preserve his word. And if it's not preserved, then God's a liar. And if it's not preserved, then Jesus is a liar. And people say, well, well, the Bible was written by man. Man would not write the word of God. Man would not write the Bible. I mean, good night. Do you really think a man would sit down? Do you really think that if David, if it, well, it was David's agenda, David decided he was going to write? You, look, David would not write a book, and, and man would not write a book that tell all about our problems and all about our sins. If men wrote the Bible, you know what it'd say? It'd say man was good. It'd say man was great. It'd say you just got to have the power of positive thinking. It'd say exactly what every self-help book written by man out there says today. You're not perfect, but you're pretty good. And if you just try a little harder, you know, you can be rich. That's what it would say. But is that what the Bible says? No, because it wasn't written by man. The Bible says you're a sinner. You deserve hell. You need to cry out to God for salvation. That's, that's, that message is not written by man. That message is written by God. And God is the one who said the word of our God shall stand forever. So see, you got to understand. you got to believe. Do we have the word of God or do we not? And, of course, we believe the Word of God is the King James Bible. I don't have time to go into all of that, and um, we've got DVDs you can watch and all that. Uh, but go back to Isaiah chapter 40. But there in verse 8, you find one of the greatest verses in regards to the preservation and the endurance of the Word. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the Word of our God shall stand forever. Look at verse 9. O Zion, that bring us good tidings. Now, good tidings, that, that phrase, good tidings is translated in other parts of the Bible as gospel or the gospel. The word gospel means good tidings. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, in another passage of Isaiah, 
the, word good, the words good tidings is used, and it is translated in the New Testament as gospel. Now, 1 Corinthians tells us that the gospel, the good tidings, the good news is the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know that taking that message to someone is good news, because guess what? You go to someone, you tell them, hey, you're a sinner, and you deserve to go to hell, and there's a place called the lake of fire, and you're going to spend eternity there, because the wages of sin is death, and it's not just the initial death, it's the second death, being cast into the lake of fire, and people say, well, that's not good news, and then you say, but Jesus loved you, and God loved you, and he died on the cross to pay for your sins, and all you have to do is ask him to save you, and he'll forgive you of all your sins, and people say, that's good news. Now here's what's interesting. Look at what he says in verse 9. O Zion, that bringest the gospel, that bringest good news. Look what he says. Get thee up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings. Notice what he said. He says, if you're bringing good tidings, here's what I want you to do. Lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, behold, your God. See, here's what he's saying. If you have good news, he says, with strength, lift up your voice. Don't be afraid. Don't be shy. Go out and tell. If you've got good news, go tell somebody. Exactly what we were preaching about this morning. Uh, keep your finger there in Isaiah 40. Go to Ephesians chapter number 6. Ephesians chapter 6. After, after this morning's sermon, somebody came up after the service to ask me a question. And this is totally fine. I'm not picking on this individual at all. It was a fine question. Uh, I think it was a visitor or someone who's been here a couple times. And they said to me, well, you know, I, I, li- I like the sermon, but, you know, I was always taught that it was lifestyle evangelism. And they said lifestyle evangelism is where you just kind of live a good life. You know, you, you just try to love people and you love your neighbor as yourself and, and you love God and you just try to live a good life. And then people are going to see the way you live your life and then that's going to cause them to want to get saved. And, and this individual said to me, uh, you know, what, what do you think about that? Does the Bible teach lifestyle evangelism or, or you know, what, what are we supposed to do? And I showed her for a few verses. Let me show them to you. Ephesians chapter 6. It's a good question. And some of you, you may be asked that question. Someone may ask you, why does your church go out there and confront people with the gospel? Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 19 says this. Paul said this, as for me. He says that utterance, the word utterance means a spoken word. He said, that that utterance may be given unto me. Notice what he says. That I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. When Paul talked about preaching the gospel, he said, we need to make utterance. He said, we need to open our mouth boldly. And we need to make known the mystery. He says, soul winning and evangelism, fishing for man, is when we go and we open our mouths and we explain the gospel. Now listen to me. Your life better back up what you're saying. You go around and tell your friends all about Jesus and they you know, see you strung out or drunk or whatever. Hey, they might not listen to you. Your life should match the message, but your life is not the message. The message is to open your mouth boldly and make known, the Bible says, the mystery of the gospel. Go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. See, in the Bible... You find one time, one time only in Scripture, do you find a man coming to Paul and asking this question, what must I do to be saved? Nowhere else in Scripture do you really find people just asking. No, and by the way, the, the, the Philippian jailer who came to Paul and said, what must I do to be saved? It's not like Paul was, you know, just, you know, mowing his lawn and that guy looked at him and said, wow, look at the power of God on him. 
Just look, I, I, I was watching you take the trash out, and I could just see the love of Jesus in you. Now, like, I know the liberals talk like that. I could see the love of Jesus in you. Okay, uh, that doesn't happen. The Philippian jailer fell on his knees trembling and said, what must I do to be saved? Because there was just an earthquake that freed all the men from the prison. He's scared to death, okay? That's not really just some guy walking up to him at the grocery store and saying, what must I do to be saved? But you know what you find all throughout the Bible? You, one time you find a man saying, what must I do to be saved? But you know what you find all throughout the Bible? A soul winner going to an unbeliever and presenting the gospel to him. Let me just give you a few examples. Go to John chapter 1, look at verse 40. John chapter 1, verse 40. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him, that's what we've been talking about on Sunday mornings, right, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon. So here you got Andrew, and the Bible doesn't say that Andrew started following Jesus, started living such a great life that Peter walked up to him and said, you know, what must I do to be saved? The Bible says that Andrew went and found, he findeth his own brother Simon, and notice, saith unto him, he opened his mouth, and he explained to him, we have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted to Christ. Look at verse 43. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee, and find Philip, and saith unto him, follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, and Philip lived such a good life that people came up to him. Is that what it says? No. Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Go to, go to Acts, just real quickly. Acts chapter number 8. Acts chapter number 8. All throughout the Bible you find this concept where people open their mouths and preach the gospel. Acts chapter number 8. Look at verse number, uh, let's see, verse number 29. Acts chapter 8 and verse 29. The Bible says this. Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts chapter 8, verse 29. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to the chariot. And Philip ran hither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah. See, there's a connection there to the book of Isaiah. That's why we're looking at it. And said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I except some man should guide me? And by the way, that's the truth. Unbelievers cannot understand the word of God unless somebody should guide them. Unless somebody should explain it to them. Unless somebody should show them. And he desired Philip that he would come and sit with him. Verse 32. The place of scripture which he read was this. He was led of the sheep of the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shears, so he opened not his mouth. That's a passage coming up in the book of Isaiah. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life was taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself or of some other man? This guy does not understand what the Bible says, like every unbeliever. He says, is Isaiah saying that this is going to happen to him? Or is Isaiah saying that this is going to happen to some other man? Verse 35, then Philip, notices, opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. The pattern you find in scripture, and we could, we could go look at so many passages. The pattern you find in scripture is when people are confronted with the gospel. We go to them. We bring it to them. We open our mouth. Your life ought to match the message, but you better open your mouth boldly. Stop being so scared. And bring them the good news. Isaiah chapter 40. Look, I mean, that's what verse 9 says. O Zion, that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings. Lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. So you say, do you guys believe in lifestyle evangelism? I believe in living a right lifestyle. But we believe in confrontational evangelism. Confrontational soul winning. And I'll get into this in the soul winning seminar on Friday. But by the way, confrontational soul winning doesn't mean we're jerks to people. It's not talking about picking a fight. 
It means that we bring it to them. We give them the opportunity to uh, hear the gospel. That is a pattern found in Scripture. And even here in Isaiah 40 and verse 9, we are told to lift up our voice with strength. Open our mouths to preach the gospel. Look at verse 10. Behold the Lord, the Lord God. Now, now I want you to notice. Remember when we looked earlier at the passage, prepare you the way of the Lord? That was the first coming of Christ. Remember, we referenced Luke chapter 3, where John the Baptist prepared the way. He was a voice crying in the wilderness, and he was preparing the way of the Lord. And that was the first coming. That has already happened. Jesus already came. He was already born. He already died. In verse 10 of chapter 40, we find a reference to the coming of the Lord. But I want you to notice, this is the second coming of the Lord. This has not yet happened. This is something that's still to come. Look at verse 10. Behold. The Lord God will come with strong hand. Now, who's coming? The Lord. Now, that doesn't say capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, right? That's a capital L, lowercase O-R-D. That's a title. But then he tells us it's the Lord God will come with strong hand and his arms shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. Now, let's, uh, let's reference that back. Keep, keep referring to Isaiah 40. Go to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. And I want to show you this just to show you, you got to be really careful about these prophetic books. The, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and all these guys, they, they were preaching what they saw and what God told them to preach, but they did not really understand as much as we understand today. And so many people get thrown into false doctrine because they don't understand that Isaiah didn't, you know, he was referencing the first coming. He was referencing the second coming. It is our job as New Testament believers to use the New Testament to explain to us the Old Testament. And where people get themselves in trouble is where, you know, everybody who wants to teach me and rebuke me about, you know, you got to repent of your sins. They all want to take me to Ezekiel. I want to take them to John. They want to take me to Ezekiel. Now, which one makes more sense when you're talking about the gospel? Do you understand what I'm saying? We use the New Testament to explain to us the Old Testament, Revelation 22. And the further in Revelation you go, the further down the line you go, the clearer things get. So guess what? Revelation, the book of Revelation is more clear than the Olivet Discourse that Christ gave on Matthew 24 and the different chapters there. The further down further we get into the New Testament, we, a, that we have more clarity. And the revelation of Jesus Christ is the most clear when it comes to prophecy. Revelation 22, look at verse 12. And behold, I. Now, the person speaking here is Jesus. You can look at it in the context. If your Bible is a red letter edition, verse 12 is in red letters because that's Jesus speaking. And he says, behold, I come quickly. And notice this is the same quote from Isaiah 40, verse 10. My reward is with me. Do you see that? Can, can, do you have your place in Isaiah 40? Let's flip back, and I want you to see it. Isaiah 40, verse 10. Behold, who's coming? The Lord God. He will come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. Revelation twenty-two twelve. 12. Who's coming? Jesus. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. Do you see that? To give every man according as his work shall be. So according to Isaiah, who is Jesus? The Lord God. Who's coming? The Lord God. No, 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 no. Well, you don't understand, Pastor. I had these people, they knocked on my door, these Mormons and these Jehovah's Witnesses. They told me that Jesus wasn't God. 
They told me that Jesus was just a good man and Jesus was a prophet. They told me that Jesus was a God, but not the God. But according to the Bible, who is Jesus? Because Isaiah said, hey, the first coming, the Lord is coming. Prepare you the way for the Lord. And then Jesus shows up and they say that's the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And then the same Isaiah says later, hey, he's going to come back again. And his reward is with him. And it's the Lord God. And then Jesus shows up and says, hey, my reward is with me. Because Jesus is God. And today there is an attack on the deity of Christ. And people want to say, he was just a good man. He was just a good prophet. He did good things. No, he was not just a man. He was God in the flesh. He's the God-man. Look at verse 11 of Isaiah chapter 40. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lamb with his arms and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. And that's referring to the coming of, of Christ and how he will deal with us. Look at verse 12. On verse 12, we get into a, 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 different, uh, a different kind of section here in the chapter. And it, it all goes together. But let me, I, I don't think I've been doing a good job at giving you these points. So for those of you that wanted to take notes, uh, the first section, number one, verses one through two was a message of comfort. Verses three and five was a preparing for the first coming of Christ. Verses six and seven was the frailty of man. Verse eight was the endurance of the word of God. Verse nine was the preaching of good tidings. Verses 10 and 11 was the second coming of Christ. His reward is with him and he's coming to reward us for the work that we do. Verses 12 through 26 are the largest section in this chapter. And it's probably the funnest section. Is funnest a, a word? I don't know if that's a word, but it's the most fun section in the chapter. And uh, I, I really like this section of, of chapter 40, uh, verses 12 to 26. It's all about the greatness of God. Notice what, what the Bible says. Look at verse 12. Verses 12 and verse 21 and 22 are all about who is more powerful than God. He says, who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Here's what he's saying. When God measured the waters for the oceans and the lakes and the rivers and the seas, he took his hand, he poured some water in the hollow of his hand, and then he said, that's enough, and he put it on earth. That's the idea. He says, who hath uh, uh, measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Here's what he's saying. Who other than God is able to, in the hollow of their hand, measure the waters for the earth? And notice, meted out, the word meted means measured. And meted out heaven with the span. Now the span uh, in those days, the, the idea was the span was the, the span of your arm. They would, use a, a, um, they would use their arms to measure things, you know. And if, you, if I said to someone, you know, oh, you know, I need it to be uh, three spans long, they would say, well, what, what do you mean by that? And I, I'd use my arm to measure that. That was the span. And here what, God, what the Bible is saying about God is that when God measured the heavens, I mean, think about the universe, the infinite universe. He measured it by just taking out his arm like this and saying, ah, it's big enough. And he measured, he meted out heaven with a span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure. Can you imagine that? Could you imagine just going to your house and trying to measure the dust in your house? Now, for some of you, it'd be easier than others. But, I mean, even the cleanest house, it would be very difficult to measure the dust in your house, and the Bible says that he comprehended the dust of the earth. You ask God, God, how much dust is on the earth right now? And he could tell you exactly how much, you know, however many grains or whatever. And weighted the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. He could tell you Mount Everest weighs this much and tell you the, the, the weight. I mean, and what Isaiah is trying to tell us is God is great. 
God is powerful. God is big. He says his hand, he said he uses hand to measure the oceans of the earth. I was telling Brother David, we're out so many, it makes me laugh because, you know, these Pentecostals that want to preach that you can lose your salvation. We'll take him to John chapter 10 where it says, you know, that, that no man can pluck you out of your father's hand. You know, they'll say, my father, you know, Jesus said, my father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. And here's what the Pentecostals say. They say, well, no one can pluck you out of their hand, but you can walk out of their hand, out of his hand. You know, and you compare that to Isaiah 40. That's a big hand to walk out of. I mean, you might want to start walking. You know what I mean? It might take you all life to find your way out. I mean, you know, it's it's funny, but it's like, he says, the idea, and that's what, and Jesus is thinking, you know, he's trying to explain to you, this is how hard it is to get unsaved. You have to come out of the hand of God. The hand that was used to, the hollow of his hand was used to measure the oceans. And he's saying, look, God is powerful. Look at verse 21. Have ye not known? Notice he said, verse 21. Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Have they not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? Notice verse 22. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. Now, I don't remember exactly, and my numbers could be wrong here, but I think we're told, people tell us, people that measure these things, tell us that the book of Isaiah was written about 700 years before Christ, which would make it about 2,700 years or you know, almost 3,000 years. Isn't it crazy? 3,000 years ago, Isaiah knew that the earth was a circle. I mean, think about that. Look at verse 22. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. You know, people try to say, Christians are a bunch of Neanderthals. You guys still think the earth is flat. Hey, we knew the, the, the earth was circular when everybody else believed it was flat. And by the way, science never disproves the Bible. The Bible always is ahead of science. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. And the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell. He's saying, who is more powerful? Who is bigger? Who is badder? Is that a word? I'm using a whole lot of made-up words tonight. Who is badder than God? That's what he's saying. Who's bigger than God? Who's tougher than God? Who's more powerful than God? Look at verse 13. He says, who's smarter than God? Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord? He said, who, who showed God his way around? Who, who, who directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or being his counselor, hath taught him. Who was God's teacher? Who was God's instructor? Who, I think Ms. Cricket's granddaughter asked me today, you know, what does God eat? <laughs> you know, but here's the thing. No one. I mean, uh, good night. Nothing. God, I don't know what God eats. He doesn't eat anything. He's a spirit. But, you know, being his counselor, who taught God? Look at verse 14. With whom took he counsel? Who does God go to for advice? And the answer to that is Nobody. Who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment and taught him knowledge and showed to him the way of understanding? Who taught God? Who instructed God? Who gave lessons to God? And the answer to that is nobody. No one's smarter than God. Look at verse 15. Behold, he, he, says, he says, you know, who's more powerful than God? He says, who's smarter than God? He said, what nation is more powerful than God? Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket. And are counted as the small dust of the balance. Do you understand what he just said? God looks down at the great, big, mighty United States of America and he sees dust. He sees a drop in the bucket. Behold, he taketh up the aisles as a very little thing. People, you know, our, our world has this idea. We're going to unite the nations and we're going to be mighty. And we're, you're going to be what? A bunch of, you know... Little drops in a bucket, a bunch of dust. 
See, remember, he started this chapter with comfort. And we get all wound up and we get all scared and they're going to take away our liberties and they're going to make us take this chip and they're going to make us not, you know, they're going to do all these things. Listen, what are you so worried about? God isn't worried about the nations of the earth. He says the nations are as a drop of the bucket. They are counted as the small dust of the bounds. Behold, he take them up. The owls are a very little thing. Look at verse 16. And Lebanon. Now, if you've read your Bible, you know that Lebanon is a mighty forest. It's a very well-known forest in, in, in those Bible days there in that uh, uh area of Israel, and he, he looks at this huge forest, and he says, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. He said, if you burnt the mighty forest of Lebanon and offered it to God as a burnt offering, he says, it's not enough. He says, God is powerful. Look at verse 17. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. He said, God's not impressed with you. The countries, the nations, the power of the earth. He says, what idol is more powerful than God? And you got to understand, Isaiah's preaching to these people when a lot of these nations are into all these idols. So, of course, he starts jabbing at that. Look at verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? He said, look, he's explaining to them the God of the Bible. And he says, so, so who exactly is it that you're trying to say is like God? Or what likeness will you compare unto him? The workman melted the graven image, and the goldsmith spread it over with gold and cast his silver chains. He says, he says, what are you trying to compare God to? He says, you want to melt metal, gold, and silver and turn it into a God? Verse 20, he says, he that is so impoverished, he said, the, the people that are poor, they can't even afford silver or gold, you know, to make an entire idol out of silver and gold. He says, he that is impoverished, that he hath no oblation, chooses a tree that will not rot, and seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image. He said, he said, you know, those of you that are fancy with your idols, he says, you go out and you get a big old idol made out of gold and silver. He says, but people that are broke, they just go find a nice tree and carve an image out of a tree. Now notice what he said. He says, he that is so impoverished, verse 20, that he hath no oblation, chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image. And then he says this, that shall not be moved. He said, what he's saying? He, he's saying he wants somebody to do a good job with this tree because he doesn't want it to like toddle. You know, he doesn't want it to like fall over. He wants it to sit nicely. Listen, if you've got to pay, make, you got to make really, pay really good attention because this is my God and I don't want him to turn over. You've got a really weak God. And, and Isaiah's trying to tell these people, he's like, God is bigger than you can imagine. I mean, God is big. God is powerful. And you're trying to make God into this little image of an idol. And people say today, well, we don't worship idols today, but you got all sorts of Christians running around with a bunch of idols around their necks and chains. You want to put Jesus on a cross? Hey, God is bigger than that. God is more powerful than that. Look at verse 23. He says, what man is more powerful than God? He said, that bringeth the princess. Now, here, here we're talking about positions of authority. He said, that bringeth the princess to nothing. There is no prince, there is no king, there is no president, there is no political leader that God is worried about. Say, Obama's got, God's not worried about Obama. God's not worried about Bush. God's not worried about Hillary. That bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth. And he shall, now here's a reference back to the beginning of the chapter. He shall also blow upon them and they shall wither. Oh, we're so worried about the, you know, legislation passed in California. They're, look, God's not worried about any prince or judge. 
God, God says, I'm going to blow on them and they're going to wither. Remember verse 6? The grass withereth, the flower fadeth. The, the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Look at verse 7. Look at the last part of verse 7. The Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. And he's referencing that in verse 24. He says, also, he says and he shall also blow upon them, and they shall wither, and the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. He says, look, God is big. He says, who, who can you compare God to? Look at verse 25. To whom then will you liken me? Or shall I be equal? God says, who's equal to me? Who, who's like me, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and behold, who hath created these things? See, God is the creator. He says, I created you. Who hath created these things that bringeth out their host by number? Now, in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, when you're talking about host, it's usually a reference to the stars of heaven. And he says, he bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might. He says, God knows how many stars there are out there. He knows the number of the stars, and he has a name for all of them. So if you thought it was a good Mother's Day present to call that number where you buy a star, you know, and name it for your mom, that was a bad idea. God already gave it a name. And that's cheap, by the way. You need to get something better for your mom. He says, the host by the number, he called them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. And he says all these things about God. God is so big. God is so powerful. God is so mighty. God is so strong. And then in verse 27, he says, he says this. Why sayest thou? He said, after, if you understand how big God is, God is not an idol. God is huge. He's enormous. He is powerful. Then he says in verse 27, Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel? And I want to ask you this question. Why do we think this way? My way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God. Why do we, why do we think that we can get away with sin? And, oh, God didn't see me do that. God sees everything. God is all-powerful. He says, why sayest thou, O Jacob, my way is hid from the Lord? Let's run a few verses. Go to Proverbs 15. We're almost done. Proverbs 15. Look at verse 3. Proverbs 15 verses, look at verse 3. Proverbs 15, 3. Proverbs 15, 3. Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 3, the Bible says this. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. This is what's called, you know, by theologians, the omnipresence of God. God is everywhere. God sees everything. God knows what you do. Your way is not hid from the Lord. He is bigger and more powerful than you. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Go to Hebrews chapter 4 in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 4, towards the end of the... New Testament, you got Hebrews chapter 4, right before the book of James. Now, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 is that famous verse about the Word of God. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intent of the heart. But in verse 13, the Bible says this, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. Here's what he's saying. There is no creature or creation that God doesn't see. There's not a creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open, now don't miss this, unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Say, what does that mean? 
him with whom we have to do. That's a reference to the judgment. Because remember, Isaiah is preparing us, prepare you the way of the Lord. Isaiah is preparing us for the day of judgment when we will meet the Lord. And he says, you know, to get ready for the day of judgment, you've got to see yourself in comparison to God. You are grass. God is great. You are little. God is big. You will die. God's word will never even die. And then he says, and by the way, God sees everything you do. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. Beholding the evil and the good. He said, you can't hide from God. Go back to Isaiah chapter 40, look at verse 28. We'll finish up here in five minutes. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. Isaiah 40, 28 says this. Has thou not known? Has thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. I love how he throws them all in there. Everlasting God, the Lord, Jehovah, I am the creator of the ends of the earth. Fainteth not, neither is weary. God never gets tired. God never has to take a nap. There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint. And to them that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint. Here's what he's saying. God never gets tired. He says, even your young children get tired eventually. He says, even the youth shall faint and be weary. And the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You know, I know that at Verity Baptist Church, we preach the Bible and we set the standard pretty high. And I know that if you say, I'm going to do everything that the Bible tells me to do. I'm going to be in church every time the doors are open. That means you are here Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And then we ask you to go soul winning. And then we ask you to give 10% of your income. And then we ask you to do this and do that. And we ask you to show up for work days. We ask you to join the choir and put your kids in the choir. We ask you to do all these things. And you say, well, sometimes I get tired. But there's a great promise in the word of God that says that they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And they shall mount up with wings as eagles, and they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. And when you start getting tired, just claim that. And say, God, you know, I'm trying to serve you. I'm not running away from the cops. I'm just trying to serve you. Will you give me strength? Will you renew my strength? Will you help me? You say, Pastor Manus, what do we take away from all of this? Here's what we take away from this um, chapter. God is great and you're not. <laughs> Any questions? <laughs> you know, I mean, God is great, you're not, so don't get full of yourself. And if you need help, God can help you. God can strengthen you. And God sees everything you do. So prepare. We are to prepare for the Lord. You say, John prepared for the first coming. But we are to continue to prepare because Jesus is coming again. And even if he doesn't come in our lifetime, we will one day stand before God. The Bible says it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. So prepare your life and live your life in a way that you are ready to see uh, the Lord in his glory. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer.